Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. Hello and welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week for episode 146 is Richard Edwards. I am a big old fan of this man. I've been listening to his music for what, 20 years. It might be 20 years. Jesus. Uh, he was the singer in Margo and the Nuclear So-and-Sos, saw them live a ton, was a huge follower since their first record. And uh, he's been one of the most prolific songwriters I know of. He has a ton of solo material. I want to let you know that he has a brand new box set out right now that you can order from him directly called Two Sad Little Islands Drift Together, Two Lonely Monkeys Find a Tree. It is rare and unreleased material between the years of 2015 and 2023. Uh, I've never known an artist who has so many unreleased recordings as this man. And when you hear his demos and you hear that they are just as good, sometimes if not better, it's crazy. It just makes you want to pick up a guitar and get to work. I am very impressed with this man's output. He's got one hell of a voice. Um, I was incredibly flattered that apparently people who are fans of him had reached out and said, you should go on the first ever podcast. So to get that message from him, blew my mind i had uh reached out to him once or twice i think in the past but uh he had, he tells me at some point that uh he doesn't do a lot of podcasts i don't know if that made the episode but he's relayed that to me so i feel incredibly honored to have had this conversation i hope you enjoy it as much as i did having it a lot of cool stories a lot of things that i didn't expect to hear from him so strap in all right, I want to let you know also that there is a bonus episode available right now where Richard answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $3 a month and get access to that, plus a whole back catalog of bonus episodes, bonus material. There's a Discord channel. I'm also updating my life from the road. I am recording this ahead of time. I've mentioned that in previous episodes because I am currently on tour in Europe. And as of this week, let me tell you where we're playing. Uh, on the 14th, we're going to be in Copenhagen playing the Copenhagen Festival. On the 15th, we're going to be in Stockholm playing at Hus 7 with Boneflower, incredible band from Madrid. Uh, the next three shows are actually with Boneflower after that. So uh, we're going to be playing in Tallinn, uh, Estonia at Pavli 
Angar. And then uh, on the 18th, we're going to be in Riga, Latvia uh, at Tujazini Kur, if I'm saying this correctly. Probably not. Uh, and then uh, on the 19th uh, in Vilnius, uh, Lithuania at Sodas 21-23. That's also with Boneflower and a band called No Real Pioneers. I will give you the following week's shows next Wednesday for that episode. All right. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the incredibly talented Richard Edwards. Richard, it's so nice to uh, to officially meet you. Uh, I've been a big fan for a very long time, so this is uh, this is a, a real a real joy for me. Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks. Uh, thank you. It's so nice. Yeah. Yeah, getting uh, getting that DM yesterday or the other day was uh, was was a nice little moment. Especially, I feel like the world we live in these days, uh, you have to cherish any of those random encounters where you just all of a sudden get a message saying, Hey, I should, uh, people have been telling me about your show. So that really did mean a lot. So thanks for hitting me up. Well, thank you. It seems like what I seem to know a lot of people that really love your, your show. So I well, did listen very cool to hear. And I also thought it was great. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just, I'm just taking a guess here. Are you from actually Indianapolis? Is that like, uh, born and raised? Yeah. So many years I didn't live there, but um, yeah, I was born there and spent my, my childhood there. Okay. Yeah. It seemed like from, if I'm following any sort of like recording trajectory where it seems like you've, you've spent time on different coasts and things like that. But I was curious if, yeah, if Indianapolis was home. Sort of. <laughs> I mean, it was, <laughs> yeah, it's where I was born. Um, yeah. For a long time, our recording base was in Chicago and that became literal home for me for a while. But yeah, you're right. And then I, I, same for New York and Los Angeles, I guess. Sure. So uh, the first question I usually ask musicians is when you were growing up, do you remember the first thing that you remember connecting with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something your folks were listening to, but something that you found and gave you maybe a sense of identity. Well, there's a couple of them. Um the first one that I found was probably pretty lame and pretty Christian because my family was was pretty Christian and um, and I remember someone, some preacher coming to um, coming to my parents' church. It seems like a strange message, but his message was, "If your kids want Christian music, you better give like buy them all they want. It's your duty to just say yes because it's great <laughs> that they want that." So sure. Like most of the Capital. parents, they took it. Yeah. As you say, capitalism right. by way of Christianity. Yeah, right. Let's by go. way of Christ. Yeah. At the time, it seemed more benevolent than that, but you're right. Um, so, like most of the parents, my, my parents took it super seriously for like a weekend and, <laughs> um, and took us to whatever the Christian bookstore was and, um, and loaded us up. And I, I had a friend who was real important to me musically in a, in a bunch of ways, but he, it was a, a friend's older brother and he worked at the, the christian music um i guess they were bookstores and they had music too back then um he worked there for some reason he was a pretty gnarly guy i'm not sure how he got the job or why they let him in but i remember him kind of taking me over the side and being like uh a lot of this shit sucks but um this doesn't and he gave me some starfire 59 record i think oh okay um, yeah yeah and, and that record meant a lot to me and i started to realize like a lot of christian music especially then was like copies of like if your parents won't let you listen to 
Green Day. Here's a band that sounds like Green Day, but it, or whatever. Um, and Starflyer 59 was the first band when I was, I guess I'm, I was really young because it wasn't very long for me in that world of, of listening to my parents and listening to that kind of music. But um, that Starfire record opened my eyes to like, oh, right, it's not all just kind of a carbon copy of um, of, of sinful bands or whatever. I'm pretty from I'm like familiar enough with Starflyer. I definitely owned one of those records at one point. Like there was, as you're saying, like there was bands that were close enough to other things that even if you are listening to, you know, quote unquote secular music, you end up getting into those bands too, because, you know, maybe they're playing together or whatever the situation was. But 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 Starflyer I felt like was a band that was kind of unique to themselves and actually were writing very, good very, songs. Very, very, unique to themselves, yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I maybe don't realize, were their song, were their, their, their songs weren't like specifically always Christian too, right? Not it seemed at like all, they were maybe no. writing about other stuff. Oh, all the time. And if there was any Christian songs, they were so well-written that you couldn't tell. They were poetic. You could and, forgive it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and actually, um, I, I kind of fell in love with that guy, um, Jason Martin, the singer of that band, and again, I, I don't know what happened in Christian music after that or or before it. I, w- I was it was a very short detour for me, but um, the fact that he I, I don't know how much you know about him, but he like inherited his dad's truck driving. He's just like a truck driver and just drives around the. He just lives a total blue collar life, makes music on his yeah. own and for whatever reason. I was more ambitious, but I I really respected that about them and him. And um and and years later we were being asked um, we'd made that this first record at this band. I was in Margo and the nuclear so-and-so's and it was time for the second record. And we had some suitors like for the first and last time, as far as labels went and there, and there was a bunch of people saying like, Oh, if you were going to have, maybe it's good to bring in an outside producer, which is a strange thing in music where they love that record you made by yourself with no producer. But then it's like, it might be time to bring in a professional. Um, and I sent it to Jason and because I knew some of the records he'd produced and I just said, you know, I was a big fan since I was little, you have this opportunity maybe to be in a bigger label. And I talked to him a bunch of times on the phone and a bunch of times, a few times on the phone after he heard the demos and it's just everything you could hope for. He just like deep voice, like, so, you know, he's lives in California, but he might as well be in Idaho or something. He's like, sure. He's just that kind of guy. And, and he's, he, he didn't turn me down, but he kind of said like, this is already produced. What do you want me to do? Um, it's kind of a nice thing to hear. It was, but it was also like, man, I kind of like to go out You're there. Like, man, I kind of wanted to work Jason with you, Martin, and like, yeah, like maybe go on one of his his big rig trips with him. Um, but anyway, that was the first one. The second one was was more personal and more less driven by my my parents' scene or whatever. And that was probably just the blue album. I remember being like fourteen or fifteen and being given that record and just feeling like I've I've told this story before, but just. Just feeling, I'd, I'd loved so much music before. I'd loved Graceland, which is one of my dad's favorites, and loved Paul Simon. But but for whatever reason, the Blue Album must have been like the first person that heard Beach Boys or something. It was just like, oh my God, someone made something just for me, you know, just the way I see the world, just the confusion I have at 13 or 14 about girls and what they like or don't like. And it changed my life. Yeah. I mean, it's like the great thing about Weezer is they give you so many opportunities to grow out of them, but, but for what <laughs> I'll well always fun. love them. Yeah. I'll always love them because of how much that meant to me when I was a little kid, you know I mean? I'll never t- say bad. I'll, I'll say bad things about certain records just to be honest, but 
you know, it's a bad character to be shitty about something that meant that much to you when you were 13 or, or whatever, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. They're a band that, um, it's like a, a friend once said, like, as their records come out, it's like, you could always appreciate them for obviously the first handful, but like specifically the first two, but like, as time goes on, you're they're one of the few bands you could be open-minded to but he his analogy was it's like being handed a soda you'll take one swig and be like i'm good and then you could maybe toss out the rest but you could you could expect there to be one or two probably great songs on each record and the fact that they still have that ability and that's the thing i have more of a sweet tooth for their soda than most people do and and they do have every now and then they put out a record where you're like oh shit like i thought that white one they put out was amazing I, i think it stands up with anything they did and the thing I admire about them, I have just enough overlap now in, in musical circles and social circles to know that that dude works really hard. He's got a work ethic that's pretty inspiring. And even if even if he's not the best judge of his own shit all the time, sometimes people aren't. You know, there's filmmakers, there's plenty of artists like that, that that are really prolific and really talented and really hardworking that aren't the best filter all the time for their their muse. <laughs> And from, Uh, yeah, and like from what I understand about the guy, it's like he's almost mathematic about his songwriting, you know, where like he's he's very studied and is like probably has like one hell of a Google Doc about how to write the perfect song kind of a deal. And I think he understands it like, oh, that one didn't work on to the next one. That's why they're so prolific. I think he's like that. Yeah. And he um, and I know people that 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 deal very closely with him who, who who don't have any relationship with him at all, except for musical. I know people that have gotten really close with him. I I went to see them um, again. The soda analogy makes a lot of sense because it's a band I never need to see again live if I ever needed to. But I took my daughter when she was really little because she, um, she really liked it. I mean, she, she had good melodic taste. She liked that. And, and um, I think I had a friend who I can't remember what it was, but anyway, they, I took her up to see him and it was like, Oh, go back and meet him. And, and um and so we did and i'd met a couple of them before and 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 my daughter was like five i think i was holding her and um we have this wonderfully awkward picture with them and of course he didn't know who the fuck i was i think at some point he did agree to write he wanted to write he heard something i'd made and he wanted to write with me it didn't happen because i took the song back but he at least i mean I, i think at the moment he didn't put it two and two together or something but um my daughter I think was like uncomfortable by how uncomfortable he is in general and just like looked at him and just said, you going to play pork and beans tonight? And he looked at her and just said, yes, I am. <laughs> kind of like lowered his head. And that was that. And, um, and then the show happened and, and she liked Weezer. I think they headlined, but she fell in love with this band. I knew nothing about called panic at the disco. And it was horrifying. Oh, yeah. She just, he whipped his shirt off like an age. Oh God, this asshole tore his shirt off and she shrieked like she had just turned 17 and she was five. And I just remember being like, oh no. And um, she just spent the whole show taking pictures and she listened to it for months and months and months. And some of those lyrics are not very appropriate for, that's a weird thing about them is I'm kind of like, I must have enough of like the preacher kid stuff in me. My parents aren't preachers, but, uh, yeah. where I'm, I'm watching their show and it's like it's one thing if you're making music or art that's a little fucked up lyrically and and most of the fans are old enough to understand it and they're singing about cocaine and all this stuff and their fans are like 12 
And I remember just being like, what the fuck? Like, how can you sleep at night? Um, <laughs> right. But of course, then my daughter's listening to it and I didn't stop her, but she's smart. To that, like, well, yeah, because to them, they're just, they're seeing attractive people playing these hooky tunes, whereas like you have almost like subtitles playing at the bottom of the performance of what is actually being said. And you're like, absolutely. Clenching your pearls and it's even for the worse. I think my, my dad and I were going to go take her. So I can't remember why my dad is going with me. She had a, I used to chaperone a lot of her Girl Scout trips and, and stuff. And maybe she was going to see a movie with her Girl Scout troop that my dad wanted to see anyway or something. So he asked if he could come. And so my dad and I are up front and she's in the back just screaming like, cocaine, gasoline with headphones on or something at five years old. And it's, it's, oh, gosh, she's listening to that panic at the disco, motherfucker. Oh, and my God. Fun. That's amazing. Yeah, so that that. Um, do you remember? Did you have any other ones or, or should we move on to the next question? Oh, I'm sure I did. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I think at the, after that, I fell real deep in love with like that third big star record and, and pretty like traditional trajectory of someone like me. I, I, I got really into Alex Chilton and, um, but I'm weird. I'm, I'm like much more kind of well-versed in, in, in movies and, and books than I am. in like, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of music. I do maybe of like pop music. Cause I consider myself like a, a fan of like old pop music, really old country music. I don't know a whole lot of like what's going on. I didn't really know contemporaries of our band when we were going on. I was always confused by comparisons and stuff like that. So yeah, the big star is a big deal. Just out of my own curiosity, you were talking about obviously like the Christian bookstore stuff and all of that and, and, and being shown this stuff. So obviously Starflyer is a tooth and nail band. And I was curious yeah. if you or any of your friends were into like any of the hardcore stuff that was in there. Like did, did oh, yeah. Punker hardcore, like the solid state Zayo, all those sort huge of deal in the Midwest. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, we had, um, that was everything kind of. So it was me and my friend. I, I talk about my friend. I have a friend named John who's in this band called everything now. And it was a band before that stupid arcade fire record. So they were cursed with like, of course, if arcade fire bothered to Google it, they would see that this great cult band from the Midwest already had this name, but yeah. um, everything was hardcore. So, so when I was 14 or 15 and I was starting to go to like a lot of these shows were at the anarchist bookstores and stuff. Um, and yeah, it was a huge convergence of, of like Christian straight edge hardcore. And then it was me making pop music and John who was in love with the beach boys. So it was like the two of us that were in these bands that were, and at the time, I guess my band was pretty distorted, but it was very melodic and everything. I can't help but make music. That's pretty melodic. It's just my sensibility. And um, so, yeah, I always thought about that. It was, it was like two bands that were interested in like the beach. John and I love the beach boys and we love that kind of stuff. And everything else for sure seemed like, I don't remember if you remember this, this magazine called seven ball, which was oh, like the Christian Oh God, you got to look it up. It was like the Christian spin magazine. Oh my um, God. Yeah. And there's really a great documentary to be made somewhere about this stuff. Um, wow. Oh, so yeah. But so wow, all that... my friends, everybody knew it was, it was, it was hardcore post-punk stuff. Into that stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was, I was trying to find things to, I was even looking at uh, the, the, so the band I play in, we're like a hardcore band and mm -hmm. I realized today, I was like, man, when was the last time I was even in Indianapolis? And we haven't genuinely played yeah. there since like 2012. But like, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a venue was that the called Emerson like, Theater? No, it wasn't there. But we played, there was like a place called like, 
uh the dote it was like literally a karate dojo that threw shows oh god i don't know if i know that place yeah, yeah. uh and then also the hoosier dome which i think was like another like DIY. All ages little place in fountain square yeah totally and then we also the yeah, first yeah. time we were there we played a basement and it was with uh this well it was like members of this band that was from there that was like a grindy screamo sort of hardcore band from that had been around for a long time called phoenix bodies i don't oh, know yeah, that of course remember yeah, that yeah. Yeah, course, yeah, yeah. So we played their basement the first time that we went through there. That's but... all it was. It was great. A lot of it was in Muncie, Indiana, because Ball State. When I was coming up, Ball State was just like I don't know why it was such. Everybody that was a freshman there was a musician and in a cool band, and it was a really cool two or three years of that. Um, and we probably became, for sure, became maybe like the biggest thing that happened out of that. Very relatively, but. Um, I'm trying oh, to think where else that stuff would have happened. At some point, so a lot of it was at anarchist bookstores, and it must have been a th- anarchist bookstores must have been a thing. And they were all little collectives. And then at some point, it was actually like a news. St- they all got raided, and we probably couldn't do that now because people would be like, "What the fuck is wrong with you raiding all these little right. bookstores with like ten kids that are interested in Marxism or whatever?" But yeah. um, they all, all three of them or whatever, got raided and shut down by these stupid cops that like thought there was some burgeoning like movement happening where really it was like 20 kids that would gather to like talk about Chomsky and and play. Yeah. Like bake vegan food. Exactly. Yeah. Food, not bombs, stickers and, and um, totally all that Um, stuff that all of us grew up on. Do you remember the, uh, do you remember the first album that you remember buying yourself? Like if you got, I don't know if you had like an allowance situation or an early job or something like, do you remember, I remember my first remember? CD player, but I don't remember the first CD I bought. Um, I mean, it was probably the Beach Boys or something, really. It was either Beach Boys or it was something alternative and Christian. Those were kind of the things I was listening to when I was 14 or what, however old. Um, but I, I what loved about a... Go ahead, Beach please. Boys and all that stuff. No, yeah, just like real class. I always loved girl pop, like old girl pop bands, um, 60s and 50s, even like in that transition to a real deep love of like female country shit from 50s, 60s, 70s. So I know I bought that, that trio record really early on CD with Linda Ronstadt and Emmy Lou and Dolly. Yeah. That kind of stuff. I loved, even at that age, I could sense that that, that was a strange for me to like that stuff so much. But yeah. I but I, I think you could, you know, you could certainly hear that in the music you write. There's like That's a very, great to hear. That's yeah, no, definitely between, uh i feel like it, it the foundation of a lot of your songwriting i can hear with like the melodies you come up with uh i could I hear how that is bet- between the the female pop country uh stars like that and also the beach boys aspect like i do think there's a convergence of all of those things oh man um, that's about the nicest thing i could hear yeah what uh what was the first concert you went to Oh God, this is another really embarrassing one. I think I'm sh- I think it was DC Talk, Christian band. Oh shit, my, yeah, that's Christian, Christian band, band, right? But again, I was like twelve, I think, and I think my cousins yeah. and my aunt and uncles took us to mega church where they were. I'm sure the church used their entire budget to bring them in or whatever. Very unethical, <laughs> but um, that was the first one I can remember. And then, um, but again, those memories are pretty superficial because that's not stuff that really some of the like Christian iconography and imagery and and ideas did stick with me, not in a way that I adhered to them, but they do seem to be a part of, of what I, how I think and what I, whatever. It lays a foundation. 
It does for sure. And even if I can be completely gone from it, I like the foundation it laid because I do know the Bible. I know all this stuff and whatever. It's just another thing to put in your weirdo quiver of arrows. But um, I had a friend named Sarah and a friend named Monica who were, they got really, they were really into um, indie. I guess it would be indie rock. Like what would you call like, like the early mid nineties, like Nutramilk Hotel and things like that. I guess yeah. it's indie rock. Or the beginning indie rock, of indie yeah, rock. totally. Yeah. They were into that kind of stuff. And and it's not stuff I loved, but I, I started going to shows with them in Columbus, Ohio and places because like you said, not being here for over ten years. Now there's a lot of stuff that comes to Indiana, I think, even though I, I, I don't go to them. But um back then you really had to go drive to Chicago or Ohio to see anything. So I remember them being really into um, there was some Midwest stuff that was starting to happen. Like um, they really liked this band who now I work with this woman and loved and loved singing with her. Um, this band was called Azure. Azure. Yeah. Like, sure. Maria Taylor. Yeah, like Omaha. And Maria has become like a good friend and someone that I love singing with. Um, but I, Ar- I don't think I even. Orlando Fink. I don't know. Orlando. Yeah. yeah. Well, Todd makes my, yeah. Todd, her husband. Um, makes my hats. Uh, oh, awesome! I think so. Yeah, Todd and Arenda. Along the lines, we became really close with a lot of them. Jake Bellows, who's in this amazing band called um, Neva Denova. Neva Denova. Yeah, yeah, Jake's band. Yeah. Um, so some of that stuff I remember going to see. I definitely remember going to see Azure at a really small place. I remember seeing maybe Neva Denova with him with like people that became good friends. I can't remember if I saw him or if I'm conflating like getting to know him in Omaha just as a person with seeing them. But there was some stuff like that. Um, I think at the point where I see him shows, it was like a little bit too late to see the stuff I really loved from that era, which like, I feel like Nutramilk Hotel is a band that if it was like that kind of thing, I generally really don't like that kind of voice and that kind of, but I, I love that record completely. It might be like yeah. the only indie rock record I genuinely completely love. Um, Maybe it's like a pavement record I really like a lot too, but uh, it's funny. Yeah, I was about to say you strike like. you strike me as someone that would have owned a pavement record. I def I didn't like Slanted and Enchanted, but Crooked Rain I freaked out over for sure. That's my probably. that's my jam too. I'm sure you'll find this uh you might find this entertaining, but the last time that I saw Azure, it was at the Troubadour here in LA. And uh I went with a good buddy of mine and the band right before Azure or Azure was setting up. And the door swung open and Jenny Lewis came walking in, but with Bill Murray and the room, the room was definitely like filled, but like not filled enough to where not everybody in the room just turned their head and watched them just walk across (laughs) the whole venue. (laughs) It was just like, and uh, yeah, I was, I, I admit that I was the first person to start the chain of events where I was like, well, I have to say something. So I, I, I bugged Bill Murray. I, he was very he polite. Didn't, he didn't tell you. See, that's good. He was polite with me too. I have, so Jenny, I know, I know Jenny a little bit, just, we have so many mutual friends. And the last time I saw her, I think it was her birthday and we all went bowling. Awesome. And I remember Jenny being a good bowler. Her sister was in a, I think maybe not a good bowler. Bill Murray <laughs> was not there. Okay. Uh, but that was fun. Uh, and then I saw Bill Murray at South by Southwest a thousand years ago. 
and he was and I had heard of course all the things about like you don't want to meet Bill Murray and he was great he just like shot back oh you know pretended he'd hurt our band or something and Aww. we left him alone pretty quickly but then I left because I tend to leave places and sure. go home or, or whatever or go to a smaller yeah. bar and drink with my couple friends instead of and I had a couple people that stayed and they were like yeah fucking Bill stayed till 5am like he was the last they had to basically shovel him out the door and that's apparently his mo is he 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 stays i leave he stays but yeah yeah there's so many great great fables about him especially around south by southwest just like walking into house parties yeah or or, yeah or like not you know i've heard definitely stories where where uh he's i think it's all in how you approach him so Mm -hmm. i did the unfortunate thing which you shouldn't do which is i did the tap on the shoulder i understood i'm setting myself (laughs) up for failure doing that but He turned around and I said, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just have to say thank you for giving me a sense of humor as a kid. And he probably loves to hear that. Yeah. And I I put my hand out and he did the double hand handshake and he just looked me in the eye and he just said, Well, you're welcome. And I was like, I'm good. That's all I needed. (laughs) He's probably on his best behavior because he's he's with Lewis too, and she's so sweet and he probably doesn't want to look like a piece of shit in front of like, yeah, like, I, I, I don't know. Jenny, it was well, right. but she strikes me as a genuinely like kind person who you don't want to look like an asshole. I think it was right as uh, her record, her record acid tongue had come out. So I did like the lean over that, his shoulder and I looked at her. Solo? It's the second one. And I was like, okay. your new record's great. And she was like, thank you. And I just, <laughs> Well, see, that's nice. We spent Thanksgiving at her house, too, because one of the first times I might have been the first time I met her. I met all those people at different times, and I don't remember all of them, uh, the specific moments. But um, one of the first real tours we went on or not real tours, but tours where it felt like, oh, man, we're getting opportunities that we didn't have before was um, she was in a band with this other little bloke. Um, You talk about when you when you toured with the elected, because I went to that tour at the Troubadour. Oh fuck! Well, <laughs> I'll say I'll I'll start positively by saying, yeah, one of my best friends in the whole world is named Mike, and he was a guitar player on that tour. So, so the plus side is, I've been like brothers with Mike Bloom for like over fifteen years. I will say, yeah. on the flip side, I did not get along with that guy uh, who was in that band. Fair. And I say that just because I was really young. I was super young and he was not super young and he mm. was very uncool and very whatever. So we went, there was another band on that tour called Whisper Town. Do you know anything about them? Uh, I remember them being, now that you say that, I remember them on that, From but I don't show. remember much about them. Well, they're beautiful too. Um, Morgan yeah. is a singer. This woman named Morgan is the singer of that band. Her essentially husband, or there's going to be her husband soon is Jake from Neo De Nova. So just like two of the most beautiful people you could ever know. Um, is the full name like Whisper Town 2000 or something like that? That was what it was. I think they shortened yeah. it. Yeah. And okay, they were yeah. friends with Gillian and David, Gillian Welch and David. And um, so it was this weird tour of meeting all these people who like 90% of them who cares, but Gillian and David, I cared. Um, yeah. Cared big time, you know? And, and um, so we had this just very strange Hollywood Thanksgiving where we were we were by ourselves and and Morgan, Jake must have been there even though they've been together forever. Um, we're like we're gonna go to Jenny's house for Thanksgiving and she what was it totally into you guys coming you should come. So we went and and it was the the first moment of the tour where there was this pressure release valve because 
I won't speak for Jenny and I won't put any words in her mouth because whatever, that was her band. But I know she'd had some of the same frustrations. And so it was possible for me at like 21 to be like, can I just talk for two minutes about how hard this has been? And yeah. just be like, be like, I know. And that was it. Like I, I didn't take it any further than that. Sure. Um, yeah. It's that, it it's was, that, yeah. it's especially from someone who's obviously close to that situation. It's sometimes nice to, uh, to have someone else recognize those things, you know, and like not I feel, feel like alone. And everybody in, really, in her to... life recognized that. But yeah. yeah. You start <laughs> to question yourself. You're like, is it just me? Like, you know, like I, I get that feeling completely. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, well, we spent a, it was a really songs no, about each a... other. So this makes sense. Yeah. I don't know what their relationship is like now. I don't have any, you know, whatever. God bless them. Um, yeah. Everybody's got that. Everybody's got their idiosyncrasies or uh, whatever you pronounce, but but yeah, it was fun. We pa- we just passed guitar on. I really played their new songs, and I didn't really know any of them. But yeah, Morgan sang a beautiful song. I think Jake sang a beautiful song. It was like, oh right, this happens. People like sit around and pass the guitar when they're not with their families on a holiday. It's like a really sweet little. That sounds very know. like '60s '70s classic style. It was. It was the- really beautiful. Yeah. Everybody was really encouraging to each other. And Morgan sang. Morgan and I sang Graceland. I remember that. Aww. and and morgan harmonized it and it was just lovely and it was a weird tour because like i said like everything about it was lovely except for one person right so yeah. to this day again like morgan and jake i love so much and 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 miss and and every time i see him i feel like this huge wellspring of joy and happiness and i talk to mike every day every other day but um yeah that was our first uh our first like tour with a band that was established or something like that. Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T, work, coffeebar.com. Was guitar your first instrument or did you learn anything else when you're, when you were a kid? So going back to the, the friend's older brother who worked at the Christian bookstore, he was a bass player. And at that age, he was the coolest person I knew. Like, like the person who could walk into a room and girls would like him. And, and he had, you know, whatever, I don't know how to describe it, but he, um, he was Charisma. a great bass player. Totally. And just like, didn't give a shit. Like, was so laconic and, and low key and, and whatever. Like I've said this before too, but just like me, I always met older people like that. I, I was just like the kid that, that was always, I was born kind of an old man and I, I attracted older people in a weird way. Like where like I always had these people let me tag along or let me go to screenings of films with them when they were 20 years older than me. And, and he was one of those where I just go over there and he, he played bass and he was a great bass player. I don't remember anything about the bands he was in and he would sit with me, you know, 
really generous guy. I mean, he must have been 18, 19, 20, and I was a little kid. And he put my fingers where they should go and, and show me how to not just play, but like here's how to be a little careless to help with your feel, to be a little behind the beat or just like a lot of little things like that that I always remembered. Like don't care too much about playing it because that'll make your playing really uncool. And, yeah. Um, so I so it was bass for a long time, and I got a bass. My cousin Andre gave me his old bass, which was falling. The headstock was falling off. It had one string. I got it strung. I got it glued up. So I thought bass was the coolest instrument there was, and still maybe do. But then you just get to a point where you realize you have some some talent for writing, and um, you realize that you know, aside from Paul McCartney or whatever, some notable exceptions, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do to like become a really good soulful bass player who's also writing the songs. And so at totally. that point I switched to guitar. And how old were you then? I was probably like 15, maybe. I think it was pretty early when I started all this stuff. So I, we must've played our first shows when I was like 14. So maybe it was 14. So what was the first band age, you did? Like middle school. I was in this little band called Joey Hamilton and I don't, the name was some inside joke, which was too stupid to even be an inside joke. I can't remember it. It's stupid enough that I don't even remember it, but um, yeah, that was my first band. It was my friend, John Power, uh, who was really into the Beatles and this guy named Richie Lopez. Um, what did it sound like? Electric, like people like in Weezer, basically 14 year olds who were like pretty, melodically pretty gifted for 14, but for, for sure. 14, you know? Yeah. Um, so, like, it's still catchy. There's probably two songs on the thing that still to this day are catchy enough. But, yeah, like, the same thing we talked about earlier, like, pop music for people who are intimidated that everyone around them is playing punk or hardcore, you know? Totally, um, totally. I and it also EP gives you access but, to, as you say, it gives you access to, if you get put on those shows, to at least stand out, you know? maybe turn heads in the room to be like, oh, well, this is different than everything else that's been happening so far this evening. That's a healthy way to think of it. I think I was more like petrified that, that I was so different or, you know, yeah. yeah. years later, of course, that becomes a blessing. But at the time, I didn't feel super cool. Uh, what was, uh, what was the first concert you ever played or first show you ever played? Um, I remember it really vividly because I was so terrified of doing it for whatever reason, that big anxiety of mine was being on stage. And then the minute I did it, I never once was, was anxious about it again. It was really strange. Like the first time I ever did it, it became home and I never remember at, at Conan or any, like no, nothing ever made me nervous about everything else in life does, but being on stage never made me nervous. But the first one was our friend Jeffrey's older brother. I think it was them. They were just having like a backyard end of school bash they asked us to play and it was of course months of just like panic attacks every day and we played and we were super young and i remember like older girls seemed to like it all right you know uh that was my barometer for the, how successful it was or wasn't and after that we just started booking local local things you know was it all original songs or were you doing any covers yeah i don't think i ever played any show where we did covers um wow Maybe maybe John played like a Beatles song or something, but sure. No, I was playing originals from when I was like thirteen. Unfortunately, not, you know, not that, that there's anything to brag about, but um, now we had our own our own material. What uh, what about the first time you recorded? Was it with that band or was it a little later on? It was with that band. So we had a, good, a lot of this is like becoming very Christian, but um, 
I, I, I took bass lessons for five seconds, not very long at all. And, um, because my dad would get like that. If I, if I showed like, um, I, I played basketball at a basketball camp and I was very good at basketball when I was younger and, and it was run by a, by an ex pro. And he, he took my dad aside and was like, your son's really good. He's got, sees the floor much better than any 12 year old I've coached. If you, if you stick with it, he's going to be really good if he grows, which I didn't grow. But so my dad would get like, he, he, I remember the drive home, like it was yesterday, like this man believes in you. I believe in you. We're going to see this through. And that lasts for like a week. Cause my parents don't have an attention span. It goes. And it was the same with music. It was like, someone told him I was good or something, or like your, your little 13 year old can write a pop song or something. We're going to get you lessons. We're going to take this all the way. And two weeks or a month of lessons. And it was like, he was probably sick of driving me there. And I was sick of going, but the guy that taught me, um, was this guy, I don't know why my memory is so good for some stupid things. I can't remember basic stuff, but this guy's named Tony Burton. And he, he had this little studio. Do you remember right when like those DAT machines were becoming like revolutionary for recording? It totally. was like, everybody has to have one. It's going to change everything. Well, he had like the first one in town and he, he was another guy that like, I, I've always had this with older people. Just like he, he weirdly singled me out. He talked to my dad. It's like, your kid's got a gift for this. I've never offered this before in my life, but I'd like to record him. Yeah. Um, so, so we, so we recorded this little thing and something about it made him uncomfortable. And I remember him taking us out. He was like, I'd like to talk to you guys about the future of your project. Uh, I'll pick you up if we can go to Cracker Barrel. And it was the morning of 9-11. And that's why I remember it. Because I woke up and my mom came to wake us up. Like, yo, your little bass player wants to have breakfast with you. I was like, why is the TV? And she's like, oh, this little hobby plane just hit a tower in New York. That's what they thought. So we left. We met him up and he was really upset that our material wasn't, wasn't glorifying God or something. So he's like, I recorded you once, but I can't do it anymore. If some more of your songs aren't Christian in nature. So we, we, we got home and everybody we knew was at our house. Cause my brother and I were homeschooled and the schools had all let out. Cause none of the teachers knew what to do. Cause when, so when we got yeah. home, we didn't realize that this was the end of the world. We thought a hobby plane had hit a, hit a building totally yeah we the information was all, like not there no not at all and we were like 16 almost 17 i guess so this was everybody we knew was at my parents house we all thought we were going to be i mean it sounds crazy now but we all thought we were getting shipped over to the middle east to fight totally you know yeah and i remember us all shooting hoops and talking about that like we're all fucking going like this is a big deal and I remember us going inside and I said, I got just the thing to cheer us up. I had the, um, I was a comedy nerd too. So I had like all of uh, Dana Carvey, was that his name? Who did the George yeah. Bush impressions? Yeah. I had taped all of his sketches. So I was like, we're just going to watch Dana Carvey and stop thinking about getting blown up because they're going to send us. And so that was that day. And then, so John and I, who's in the band, we, we did work really hard to write two songs about uh, Jesus or something. So he would record <laughs> us more. So we did. So we went in and made an album in quotes and all of it's about girls. And then there's like one and a half songs that are very religious. <laughs> so um, that was my first memory of that. Um, and there was a lot of that. There was another guy named Brad Hammond. I truly don't know why these names are coming to mind, but 
he had a little studio in a strip mall. He he rented space and like a, and it sounded terrible. The record came out like shit. But he was another like older guy who who zoned in on us. Um, but those were the first recordings I can remember making. God, you just like totally brought me back. It's so funny, like not to not to all of a sudden turn this into like swapping nine eleven stories, but like I had graduated high school earlier that year so i was i had gotten a job i started working at a record store the saturday after i graduated high school so i was i had just gone into work and the and i had my brother and i at the time didn't have the closest relationship so like i woke up to my brother shaking me being like a plane just crashed into a boat. i was just like there's no way that conversation happened like i went back to sleep and then i woke up and like as if it never happened like i had no information so i just stroll into work all (laughs) and all my employees all the employees are just like very very upset (laughs) somber no music is being played in the store i'm just like what is fucking going on (laughs) here and um and then it's so funny because right 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 so then (laughs) my uh my co-worker who like i had uh I probably had the biggest conflicts with always he was just the worst um for the first time ever actually said something very insightful where he just like kind of looked at me he was just like everything is going to change from this moment on and that stuck with me where i was just like man that was the one time that guy had something thoughtful to say we kind of knew it too it's weird yeah it's weird how that works it's like i'm trying to think if there's any other moments like that i'm sure there are uh yeah, but I mean, none. Um, but I can't think none, of any. None yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> none totally, that big, totally. Yeah. Um, when did uh, when did Archer Avenue start? Was that like, did that band turn into that band? I guess so. So, um, I knew other musicians in high school and other bands. So when I started college, pretty much everybody in that other band became much more interested in like all right, we can go to parties and girls, you know, we can have sex and we can drink. Totally. Um, Those things weren't things I was not interested in at all, but they were very, very secondary to like, I was a nut, you know, I was very, 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 you can probably see it in what I do now. It's like, I never stopped working on music. I I was, I didn't want to be at a party every night or every weekend. I, I, that's time away from this thing I'm trying to do and build and, become better at and and I, from the very beginning i had this sense that like to get really good at this or even good enough i have to really work at it and i have to sacrifice other things in my life it's like being married or anything like i can't have a great relationship if all this other stuff is more important to me yeah um and and so when i so so that band ended because people just became more interested in in college and and so archer avenue i think i was trying to cherry pick uh it was still mostly people i knew from high school but i could tell like here's three or four who do care about music and 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 will skip a party to practice and just like kind of clicking around and stuff like that did members of archer avenue make their way to margo as well like in terms of like maybe working in that same circle like was Maybe someone who worked recording the Archer, the I Was an Astronaut record, maybe worked on Margo stuff too. That guy is named Tyler Watkins, and he became the Margo bass player. So yeah, he... That's right. Another older person that seemed to like zero in on me and decide I'm going to be part of this forever. Um, and he was... 
a Muncie kid, like somehow everything became Muncie when college started. Every cool band was in Muncie. So I would drive up there all the time. And I, it was really like that drive to Muncie, record all night, drive straight to college kind of thing. I mean, really living like a maniac. And Tyler was, um, he, I guess he must be like four years older than me, I guess. So like, you know, mm-hmm. four or five years at the time, that seems a lot older because I was 17 or something. But he was just that kid that was like weirdly legendary an hour away. Like there's this little 23-year-old who records like a professional and coming out of, um, and I'd hear people would give me the records he was making, and they sound, you know, he went to full sale. He he knew how to make like a basement sound, like a studio. And I had been working with people that didn't even know how to make a studio sound like a studio. And so, <laughs> sure, to, you know, to have like, and they were all 50, 40 year old men. Maybe they're maybe looking back, they all seemed older because, of course, they're older than me. But, um, I was already at the point where I was pretty fed up with like unprofessionalism in any way especially like you fuckers are twice my age and you can't record this to where it sounds passable or like um, or like having a a, a, a situation a where they're like we have to write some christian, christian songs to make this happen <laughs> right <laughs> you have an all so, the yeah. christian ultimatum <laughs> yeah i was i was done with that and so yeah we made that record in muncie in a basement in a tiny tiny basement um and then the same problem happened. I just realized, like, I need to step it up as far as musicians go. And, and um, yeah, around that time, I started meeting. I started becoming this weird kid who I had a reputation in the state, for sure, and a little bit in the Midwest as, like, a combination of a reputation for a modest ability, but also this insane drive. So, like, I was being notorious as, like, this is the 16 year old who will sit outside in the snow at a 21 and up open mic to play for five minutes. So I was getting this weird begrudging respect and attention from older people who were like, who is this psychopathic little 15 year old who will do anything to play for five minutes. Yeah. And a lot of those guys that were in bands, similarly to Tyler, I think just like there was an article that came out about me that about that Archer Avenue record where the, the writer was, this guy, David Lindquist, who still writes here, he's a beautiful guy who was way too kind to me in the article. I mean, called me like an, like a genius at 16 or yeah. 17. It was a big article in town where it was like a lot of older people that maybe had been in bands that hadn't gone anywhere started being like, maybe we should hitch our wagon to this kid who's t- a little 10 years younger than we are, 15 years. And that's how the Margot thing started happening is, is I started meeting those people. I was dating this woman named Heidi, who was also older than me by four or five years. And um, she played with Juliana Hatfield and some people. So I was starting to meet people who were doing it somewhat for real. Um, and it became this, this little scene started building and then it slowly became a band. And then, for a while, kind of the entire city scene revolved around that band because we were sort of the first ones to get out of out of town. That's so fascinating. That's so fascinating to hear too, because like from an outside perspective, someone who just discovered your band, uh, I wish I could even remember how I discovered your band, uh, but it was very early on. It was like pre-Animal, not Animal when I was into you guys. Like that's what, like, so pretty early on. And I just remember from an outside perspective, just being like, 
there's so many fucking people in this band. And that makes a lot of sense that it seems like all of these people wanting to just sort of be around you as a songwriter, you know, one way or another. Well, there was some of that. Um, yeah. I make the joke yeah. that like we, we would, we would have a, a week of shows and we, we, our house was just the, the, there could be a whole movie or book about that house. It was just insane. It was just, everybody was there all the time. And if we had to leave the next day, the party was going till 8 a.m. anyway when we had to leave and people would just get on the bus. So we would have band members and, and crew members who were just there because the party ended an hour before the bus had to leave and just got on it. And we were always like that. And right. it's a really stupid way to be. Um, but it was fun for like a year. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> uh, something that, you know, when just doing research that I, I'm curious to like kind of learn about the timeline here. Um, I did see that Archer Avenue continued and from listening to stuff, it seemed like they maybe moved on without you. Like you, like maybe they got did that happen? another record. <laughs> did you not oh, know? <laughs> well, if they, if they, if they did that, they owe me money or it's a different Archer Avenue. Cause when I quit it, it was supposed to be dead. Oh, um, interesting. Well, I, who, who knows if it's the same band? It seems like it well, might they, be the same band, but, but anyway, I, would, I might have to call my lawyer after this. Uh, oh no! <laughs> well, those guys I went mean, to make like... a band called Jukebox right after, and that band was awesome. I don't know if you know that band. I don't think that's us, yeah, because by 2006, um, the guys that were in Archer Avenue were doing something really cool on their own. Okay, and I don't think they had any any need to to hitch okay. their wagon to to that. But um, so we no, it was just that though. record. <laughs> squashed it there was we tried to make another one we started to make another one and i was just already off I, my my heart was moving on to something else and so so this is where i'm curious recorded. uh because i now now we're in margo territory and i have uh just from like you know time moves at such a different pace these days but i found it interesting that if the if the i was an astronaut record came out in maybe 2003 it looked like the if if, if that's correct i think that's correct it's, it's probably a, earlier least, than that that's probably when we dated it but it, it was probably officially a little bit earlier than that because um, then i saw that issue. there was the ep the songs from the dust of retreat which came out in 2003 as well and i was curious like how much i mean again this i'm trusting the internet you know better you know than i do know what was on that ep or what the cover looks um, like? Well, the covers vary of the the songs from the. It, it's it's yeah. you could tell it's the same artwork. Um, so is it like a woman, like a painting or something? Yeah, it's uh, yes, exactly. It's uh, it's okay. You could tell it's from the same artist that did the Dust of Retreat cover, and it has quite as a mouse, vampires, and uh, in blue dresses, and Jen is bringing the drugs. Um, so that came out actually. So we recorded that record. I don't know how deep in the woods you want to get with it, but we recorded it. So Tyler Watkins, who was the little wonder team engineer who decided to become the bass player for, for my, for what became Mark and the nuclear Santos, he'd built a studio for this guy and I think was getting paid not very well to do it. So it's not like he didn't have rights to use it, but he, his whole thing was if we record in the middle of the night and we wipe the hard drives at the end of the day, this guy will never know we were there. So we would show up to, to uh, punk. the city that I won't mention. Um, and I was either just old enough to drink or no one cared because we would go to this bar called something frog, dead frog or something. And 
we just sit there until we saw the lights go out. It was right. The bar was right across the street from the studio and we wouldn't drink all night. We'd have like a drink or something because we had to work, you know, um, we'd see the lights go out. We'd give it another five or 10 minutes and then we'd go to the studio. We'd record to like six in the morning. He'd, he'd take an hour to put all the files on his drive, wipe the computer and we'd leave. We did that like three or four nights a week. And I was in cop. So I, again, same thing. We'd finish at 6 a.m. I would drive straight to university, uh, sleep a tiny bit during the period where you try to get lunch for most people. For me, I would get a little bag of gummy worms. I'd eat a couple gummy worms. I'd take a nap. And um, and we did. that's what we did till the record was done. So, so we had this record that was finished and it started to, really quickly it started to people around the country started to get it. Um, and I'd always had this, you know, I had, I sent out demos like crazy when I was a little kid. I was brought out to New York when I was 14 by a promoter in Greenwich village who fell in love with the demo when I was 14 and wanted me to come play, wanted to be the first New York show I ever played. Just weird. Always like that. Never got big, unfortunately, but same thing happened with this record. Like we just started getting calls all the time about like, so-and-so has it, so-and-so, so-and-so label has it. And they started, they started flying us out to New York all the time. And it must've been a certain period. Everyone I knew left New York, probably a similar thing. They went to Nashville or LA, but at the time, I don't know, we went to LA a couple of times, but it was almost always New York. And at a certain point, like every other week we were being flown to New York on someone's dime. Um, and we got flown in there by Sony, by Epic before before dust retreated ever i think a, na- a lo- local label had put out like 200 cds of it or something yeah i saw that um, yes yeah. sanctuary something something i can't remember it was a nightmare yeah. to get them to stop doing it after we signed to a label but um standard so, recording so I, company that's what it was and they're good guys <laughs> um but um we somebody somebody somewhere knew somebody at epic and gave him a couple of my songs and the, the guy was flipped out so they flew us out there but right before we went we get, i got this myspace message from this label called artemis yeah um, yeah and they were saying like they're really honest and sweet we love this record we will do everything in our power for it we, we may be being bought by v2 soon so things are up in the air but like we're committed to this if you care i said well we're going to be in new york anyway because sony's flying us in and they were no pressure, but if you feel like coming over after that, come by. And it was great. We Sony was awful and stupid. And of course, later we would find more about that out. But yeah. um, we just went over to Artemis. And I can't remember where they were. Somewhere that at the time was magical because everywhere in New York at that age was magical. And, and you and, guys just did the one record with them. And were they cool with it just being like a one album deal? Yeah. So they were just like, we, we love it. And they should, we shouldn't have sold it to them. So that's another, the downside of being in a band with older people who are kind of desperate was like, someone wants to give us 80 grand for a record. Fuck. Yeah. I should have been like, my career is going to be longer than one record. $80,000 isn't that much. Yeah. When you have 55 people in your band. (laughs) Uh, So I do have some I would never want to. I would never want to pry into Ugh. like, does the stomp clap guy get the same amount as the, no, as the doesn't. guy hitting the, the, the whiskey bottle or. <laughs> no, 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 no. But they got to live a pretty good life for a couple of years. Um, totally. Totally. 
So yeah, um, they they did it. They took it on, and and then and then it became V two, and it, and then the president of V two went to Epic, and that started that it was because we loved him so much. I was very curious of that. Be- that started to change because you guys were at the forefront of the first wave of all of the labels, sort of cannibalizing each other and becoming this thing or becoming that thing. So I was curious if that's how you ended up on Epic. I was curious to ask you, did you? Did you have a relationship with uh, Danny Goldberg, who I know was like the co-owner? So much, loved him, loved Damn, Danny. And when and yeah, when we signed to, um, oh sorry, what were you saying? You know Dan? Well, I was gonna say, well, for listeners at home, Danny Goldberg, uh, if I understand Nirvana, correctly, yeah. like managed Nirvana, managed yeah, like yeah, Beastie Boys, guy, like yeah. had a pretty mm-hmm. insane career. So to have, I'm well, sure the reason that, they signed that, us was because Danny Goldberg's philosophy was. Anything my staff wants to sign, I take it home and play it for my kids. And if my kids wow. like it, I give them the go ahead. So I remember him strolling in and being like, my favorite record my kids have heard all year. <laughs> and us being like, hell yeah. And I don't think any of us knew his history with Nirvana at the time because I didn't like Nirvana as a kid. It was too angry and I just felt like it was meathead music, even though it's not. It's melodic and everything else and great. But sure. When I was 14, I thought the Beach Boys were rad and Nirvana was meathead music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But Danny was amazing. And so, yeah, when, when Daniel went to... Another thing that we m- might have fucked up a little bit was um, Daniel started Glass Note right after that. Right. Um, I don't know if you know that label. And he I signed do, yeah. some bands that I don't like, like um, not Mumford & Sons, but who's the other one like that? Did he sign Mumford & Sons? I don't know, but I go some hey ho folk shit. That yeah, I don't yeah, like, yeah. But the, God bless him. Totally. He wanted us to be the second band with that band on Glass Note, and he wasn't pushy. He was just like, "I think you guys have way more awesome records to come. This is my new company. Let's do it." Yeah. And we got cold feet and just felt like it's not going to work. We heard some band he'd sign that it wasn't that folk band. It was something like. It was really like a Nirvana ripoff kind of band. And I think we just got turned off. Still really love Daniel. Um, but the guy yeah, we really had, loved. Yeah, they had Mumford and Sons and they had like Phoenix. Oh, fuck. <laughs> this must have been before Phoenix because when it was just Mumford and Sons, we were like, this is never going to work. <laughs> right. Right. And then, of course, right. <laughs> not only did it work, but uh, <laughs> that was not right. my, my uh, vibration at that point. But. Yeah, I I hope you don't. Uh, please don't take offense to this, but I was gonna. I wanted to make the joke to you that uh that because right. you guys had a lot of the sound that I think a lot of the bands like Mumford and Sons then capitalized on and then like made Absolutely. a sort sort of a genre for a while. But I was gonna call sure. Margo the Fugazi of that sound. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be great. The other people that did a podcast said we walked so Father John Misty could run. Oh, okay. So well. They- so to two backhanded compliments that I take very well, but, uh, but, uh, um, yeah, I, we just, it was a total miscalculation and I, 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 I pride myself to some degree on my taste and to some degree on my instincts. Yeah. And, um, and Danny Goldberg went to Epic and Danny Goldberg was our guy and, and we loved Danny and, and we went cause he said he was really honest about it. He was, he wasn't like, you're going to be Michael Jackson. He's like, I've probably got two years there. You can do whatever you want. That's cool. Let's go in and out and do cool shit while they don't notice. And that was music to our ears and still is. So this might answer the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is from a fan who is not only just a fan of the band, but a a fan of 
uh inside baseball dork shit and like someone who loves records and what and like vinyl and all that sort of stuff yeah. so i was always fascinated how uh what is it animal was only on vinyl and then not animal was on cd and from an outside perspective someone who just made up my own lore, now it's I looked skewed, at, yeah i looked at that where i was like okay the record label wanted these songs because they thought these were the radio hits and then you guys loved all these songs and that's why this is only on vinyl is that fair well, to that's say? literally that's... the truth oh wow okay but they they gave us a list of some producers they liked and, and one of them was like Jimino, i think who's like the spoon drummer um and i did again i was so like unaware of what was happening currently in music that i didn't really know any of these names i didn't really even know the bands they produced so one of them was this guy brian deck um i think at the time his claim to fame was modest mouse or something yep i did not i didn't know modest mouse for, for you know i was i'll be a dork and say voice. i think around the time that he did your records he did a counting a later counting crows record that i very much fuck with <laughs> Well, that guy was a big fan of my shit. I think that's part of the reason, Brian. He really liked Iron and Wine and us. That um, okay, who's yeah. The, uh, Counting Crows is um, Adam uh, Duritz. Adam, of course. Adam's a wonderful yeah. guy who I've I've known, a, a, I've talked to, and he's been very, very generous and kind about his feeling about what I make. And um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think but that wasn't the whole reason he wanted Brian, but he was a big fan of what Brian made. And I so right sure. after us, you're right. Brian became like in that world for a minute, but um. Yeah. Anyway, we were really impressed with Brian because he drove all the way down to our studio and said the right stuff and, and, and became a such a good friend and like a surrogate parent to me. I mean, he was really, I've talked about a little bit about older people around me who maybe didn't, weren't as like, um, they're a little more interested in themselves than like, this kid's pretty young and maybe we should be a little bit more like, tell him how to take cocaine and tell him like how to deal with money instead of just whatever brian was the first older person who was like no fuck that like would take me out and just be like you're writing the songs here's how it goes you know hmm. when i knew i was gonna have a baby it's first person to take me out and be like just was cared about me you know and not because he thought he was gonna enrich him even though i'm sure he made a, quite a bit on that record uh because we were there for four fucking months but um Anyway, really was one of the first people to change my perspective on like, all right, this is kind of what like looking out for a young person is really about like weird. You know? Right. Um, but we recorded and recorded and recorded and recorded for months and they never checked in on us. So we, we recorded dozens of songs and um, yeah, it's very odd that they didn't check in on us, but we assumed they trust us. It's not a bad thing shit to do. No, yeah. it wasn't. It was great. But I remember Double I was in sword, Chicago. I'm sure, though. Well, you're it became like, that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay, it, please. It became that. So, so I was there for like, I remember being there for like four months, a long time doing that record. And we sequenced it and Danny Goldberg flew into town to hear it. Kicked his feet up. Listen to the whole however long fucking animal is 50 minutes or something, 55 minutes. Record ended. He said, far out. You guys made a psychedelic record. Let's go to eat. And we went to a fancy restaurant. We got a bottle of Blue Label on the way home. We drank till like seven in the morning. We thought, this is amazing. The president of the label 
loves it. Well, yeah. get a call two weeks later that they fucking hate it. They don't want to put it out. Oh, um, no. Yeah, so our manager called me. Another beautiful guy named Joel Mark, who was the Faint's manager. Still might be Todd's manager with the Faint. And um, he's a beautiful guy, but he was real dismissive about it. He just said, like, it's the way it goes sometimes. You know, they, they're not going to put it out. So we got properly pissed. Started drinking. What can we do? We were at home. We were in Indi- back in Indiana at this point. So I... At like two in the morning, I was like, book me a flight for right now. So the guitar player went online. So there's a flight taken off in two hours for New York. I said, all right, someone who's sober enough to take me. Somebody was. They took me to the airport, dropped me off. They served me wine at 6 a.m. on the flight. <laughs> I showed up to the Sony headquarters at like 8.45, 9, whenever the traffic from the cab got me there. Beep, 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 let me up. Uh... The minute I got upstairs, the publicist, Sarah Joyce, who to this day is also one of my best friends and like a sister to me, uh, looks at me. It's like, you, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Uh, you got to you gotta go get some sleep. Like, you can imagine what like 20-year-old. Disheveled, has not slept, out. smells like all hours, the alcohol. Drinking yeah. for 24 hours, decided on a whim to fly to New York. Um so I said, I'm not going. She gave me a key to her apartment. She's like, just go sleep. We'll deal with this after. I was like, I'm not going until I talk to the A&R guy. And Danny wasn't there. I didn't have any beef with Danny because Danny loves the record. And so I did. And I, I, I'm a, I'm lucky enough I have this thing with alcohol where I don't really get drunk. I just become more logical and I'm slightly more sociable. So I very logically was like, this I'm not going to accept this not coming out. I worked on it for four months. So let's all go to dinner tonight. So I went and slept at Sarah's apartment on her yoga mat. We all went to some nice restaurant in the East Village. And I was really honest with them. I said, if you don't come up with a solution, I will take it to the library that two blocks and I will leak it. And you can sue me all you want. I don't have any money, you know, but I put it on the internet. I have all of it. And then you're not going to make anything. Well, no, you know, we don't have to go there. I said, well, fine. We have a solution in a week. I won't, I'm going to stay in New York, which I did to their chagrin <laughs> for months and months. I think I'm going to stay in New York. And if we have a solution in a week, great. And if we don't, I'm going to leak it. And I'm telling you who's leaking it. It's me. You can sue me for the rest of my life. I don't give a fuck. I have no money. I'm fine having no money the rest of my life. Very, very high, uh, very melodramatic. <laughs> and eventually it didn't happen in a week. It didn't happen in two weeks. Eventually we had shows. So I had to leave New York and I started getting calls from them on the road and they were productive calls. They had ideas. They were like, what if we let the fans choose? I said, nope, that's not happening. Cause I'm about yeah. whole reason I'm here is I'm fighting for a vision I have. Right. Totally. And that was the compromise. They said, well, what if we, I hadn't, so we'd recorded almost everything that's on Not Animals. So they knew there was a lot that they loved. It wasn't like we had no music they didn't like. They were just like, why are you picking all the six minute droney songs when you have all these pop songs? Um, We didn't record Broad Ripple's Burning because I didn't like it. And so they basically were like, here's a compromise. Just let us sequence something. 
You can do whatever you want. We'll promote it the same. We'll do it on double vinyl, 180 gram. It'll be beautiful. Your kids can hold it when you have kids. Uh, but here's the, the compromise. You got to go back and do that broader song. We love it. It's like, why the fuck didn't you record that? I was like, well, we didn't like it. And he didn't check on us. Went back to Chicago, recorded that, maybe did an overdub on a couple things. And that was the solution. But then it became this big thing in the press because back then we were in the press. And nobody would believe that crazy of a story, which was true. They assumed that it was a marketing ploy. That we'd come up with some idea to promote the record like we'd had a fight. Even though like Sarah had video of me stumbling into the Sony office <laughs> yelling for, where the fuck is Mike Flynn, you fucking coward? Come out here and show your face, you bastard. Like we had documentation that it had happened, but somehow <laughs> it was easier for everyone to believe that it was some scam. Um, so I think it was wow. another one of those things that like doubled down on like, A, we were on a major. No one understood we were there because we loved the president of V2. That was strike one. Strike two was that fucking arcade fire band. Oh, another band with 50 people. They must like that band, which I didn't know that fucking band. Still right. And no sound offense. nothing alike. Sound nothing the fuck alike. Thank God. For their fans, probably too. Uh, <laughs> but that was strike two, was everybody was obsessed with that fucking thing and yeah. couldn't imagine that anybody else could make me, despite the fact that I grew up watching bootlegs of Neutral Milk Hotel playing fucking rubber bands with nine yeah. of their friends from Athens and shit. That was what I thought was cool. It was like, yeah, these little kids from Athens, 90 of right. them on stage making this racket. But anyway, um, yeah, and then I, I guess the third strike was everyone thought it was a, a marketing ploy. I remember what's the backstory with that one performance oh. where you're all outside, like, and you play as tall as cliffs and you like, you're walking along the, the outside and, and everyone's kind of singing along. Oh, well, that and, became, and so, the instruments. There's a whole movie I can send you if I you give me your address after this. It, so basically what happened was, do you remember that the blog attack, the French? Yeah. Yeah. They were really loved our band and, they wanted they they just called us and were like, "Can we come on tour with you? We're going to start making long form films instead of just doing these takeaway shows. We want you guys to be like one of the first ones." Like hell yeah, sounds great. I think we those records we were struggling so much with those records. Now they sell for money and people seem to like them, but at the time nobody seemed to like them. And um, the fact that these you're talking about these, animal and not animal, yeah. We just okay. had so much backlash from people that were just like, fuck you guys, you're on a major label, you're fucking 12 That's years so old. so weird to me. As like it just a felt kid really brutal. Comes, as a kid who comes from fucking punk where like that's like yeah. the, you know, someone's entire personality. I just was, I just thought, I was just excited to have two different albums, but some crossover that's songs. That's really like, cool like, that you liked you it because we felt so depressed. I, my heart, I've said it before, but my heart was so broken. I was a little kid, you know, and I poured everything into those records and thought I'd done a good job. And, um, and we caught, you can't really give people shit in the press now that way. Cause people will probably say you're being problematic, but back then it was the wild west. You could call me a piece of shit cunt fucker when you're 40 yeah, and totally. 19 or something. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of that. And so when the blog attack, they were just like, we don't give a shit. We're from fucking France. We love those records. We don't care if Vice likes them. Fuck Vice. See the fuck like Vice. Right, right, right. And so, so they came on tour and they filmed the whole thing. And that was part of it. 
Oh, okay. The film was unfinished forever, but when we left Sony, I'll finish it on that just for context. When we left Sony, they owed me a big kill fee. They also knew this film had been made and unfinished and they knew that I was crazy. So they said, well, you can have this big kill fee or you can have the rights to the film. And of course, being the fucking idiot that I am, I was like, I'll take the film. And so I own it and, and it took a decade, but now it's done. It's a real, it's a two hour movie of that tour. The, the last oh, awesome. tour that that band did for Animal, Not Animal on the West Coast. And the way the tour ended was those filmmakers who now are, are making like mean girls and shit. Like they've become, they're great guys, but they've become like um, corporate filmmakers. They're just like, it's, let's just go to the hills in San Francisco. We're all drunk. It's after the show. It's 4 a.m. And just see what happens. And and that's what happened. That became the big like LeBlog attack. They they released that years and years and years and years ago. Yeah, I remember from but forever, it took forever ago. Yeah, it was it was right contemporaneously. It was like right when that happened. But it took forever for the film to get finished, and now it's finished. But um, since I mean, you have such. I mean, we were talking about how prolific, you know, like you talk about prolific songwriters. You're obviously someone who has released so much stuff. And something I've always been fascinated by is I don't think anyone has as many demos as you. The fact that you're able to like <laughs> release like triple box sets of demos from all of these <laughs> records and stuff. What do you, uh, what do you think that is? Is it just, are you this kind of person you just wake up and you're just like mo- instantly motivated to want to start recording stuff? And then like with the amount of demos that you have, how do you know when something is going to make a record versus just live on live on as a demo so two things it's changed yeah I, I, i'm always motivated the minute i wake up i'm motivated to make something less and less it's to like write 50 songs in a day it's not really like that for me anymore but i've i've never had a day where my mind wasn't constantly like is there a film i could work on is there a script i could write is there a song that i could write um i'm really driven and hard working on that um so back then, yeah, I was writing, I mean, my friend Matt, who kind of catalogs everything for us, every record, there's 40, 50, 60 songs. That's just how I was. I mean, I just wrote and wrote and wrote. Naturally, I recorded demos. Um, that cha- Part of the reason that doesn't exist so much with the solo thing is that changed a lot, where like I started to realize, um, I'm reading this book right now about the beginning of, of Los Angeles, but, and, and it's it's like the water theft in D.W. Griffith is kind of where we're at. But the beginning of film, essentially, like the idea is like, we've invented this thing to film theater, right? Like from the best seat in the house. So a shot equals a scene. We turn the camera on from the best seat in the house and that's a scene. And while D.W. Griffith didn't invent it, he refined this idea of like, <clears throat> instead of that, let's start looking at a shot is a component of a scene, you know? We gather seven or eight of those components and then we get to work at building a scene. We cut, we cut simultaneously. We cross cut, we jump cut, jump cut. Not yet. They weren't that far yet. But when I was younger, it was almost like if I write a melody, that's a verse because you just go A, B, A, B, A, B, just fill in some words. I started to see it differently during the solo records where I realized like a song, much like a scene or a film or any art any of us make, Essentially, it's space that needs to be filled. And instead of filling, it's the only art form where we fill 10% of the space and we're like, the painting's done. We just replicate it, you know, come up with some words and replicate it. 
So I stopped making demos that fast because I stopped writing that fast. Instead of writing 40 songs, I would work and work and work till I had the kernel of something that I thought was great or I loved. And I wouldn't make a demo religiously. Record the bit so you don't forget it. But instead commit to, I don't have a verse just because I have a melody I like. I have a tiny bit of this space filled. I have 80% of space that I can use any way I want. Bridges don't have to be this tiny little cul-de-sac to get us back to the freeway. They can be a, a minute and a half mini dream in a song, right? My verses can start with this melody I love, but if I pick up my guitar every day for two months, sing that, try to feel where it wants to go rather than this rule that I thought, then all of a sudden I can change the structure of these pop songs I write. And Margo is a little adventurous with structure too, but not in the way where it's almost like meditation or prayer or something. It's picking up the guitar with this little bit of information and you don't pray to anyone, but you just say, if I work hard enough every day in a month or two, this thing is going to be like this instead of like this. And what I'm doing on the microphone is doing bigger wave signs instead of small wave <laughs> yeah. signs. But you have verses that, that don't repeat. The second verse is completely different melodically, but doing all of that, the goal is almost to be like, it's not like Graceland because nothing can be like Graceland, but how conversational and free that record is. And yet still the catchiest fucking thing you've ever heard. Right. So that was the goal is how you can subvert and manipulate structure by working harder, not by trying to be a brat, but like being patient with songs. So with the solo stuff, with all those records, there's a few songs that didn't make them for sure. But for the most part, those demos are like four months of like tiny little worms becoming snakes. And right. So long way of saying like my perspective just totally changed. Like I don't ever have the interest in writing and volume anymore. I want to work on the one thing I think is the best thing for as long as it takes for it to be great. And unfortunately I've learned the lesson that my English teachers tried to beat in my head all through my life, which is like revision is so much more important than writing to be a great revisionist and editor of your work and to be patient and honest with yourself that like, this is pretty good, but it can be better if I work at it longer or let it just stay longer. Was I mean, that leads me to want to ask you, like, are you good at being able to know when a song is done? Like, are you able to let it go and be like, okay, this is finished? I didn't, yeah, I didn't find that much problem with that for whatever reason. I felt, I just have good instincts for that stuff, I think. And not good instincts where, of course, if my instincts were better, I'd have more money and stuff. But like, um, no, they, they were always naturally kind of told me that. There were songs that were a minute long that became six minutes. I mean, the, the, the furthest I took it was this record called The Soft Ache in the Moon, which was the second solo record. And those songs are all five and a half minutes and they were just, months and months and months of the closest I'll ever come to doing something like Graceland, even though, again, not comparing it. Um, but it, it always seemed to reveal itself. The, the songs that wanted to be six minutes got to six minutes after two or three months. There were songs that, that got to six minutes that one day I realized the answer to this is it ends abruptly at, at three twenty. There's three minutes right. of it that are sitting somewhere on a floor <laughs> I just, I found that by being patient and by being really open 
a lot of times those problems have solved themselves because you're not mm. struggling against the clock or you're not struggling against your ego. You're kind of saying like, I want to give this four months, not so it can be the, the most commercial thing, but so it can be what it wants to be without me putting a fucking leash on it, you know? And totally. I found that's helped me in, in writing long form shit. It's helped me writing screenplays. That mentality, I wish so much that I had learned it earlier. Um, Cause it's, it's really like the best process kind of um, knowledge I've stumbled across. Um, before we get to the, the last question I wanted to, cause you've worked with some producers that I find really fascinating and, um, I've met a few of them and, and things like that. And, uh, in one way or another, and I was just kind of curious, like, if you want to just like give a quick reaction to, to how it was working with some of these people, I'd just be curious. So like, um, I didn't, I don't even think I realized until I was doing research for this, that, uh, you did, um, Rod got domestic with, uh, Congleton, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. How was that experience for you? Was that, was that out here in LA? Did you record that? No, we did ha the first half at um, Albini's place in Chicago. Oh, wow. We did the other half at our, he was another guy that, that just came for no money because he was into it, you know? Um, yeah. And that was like early, that was early-ish on, I think, for Congleton probably too. Like he, he was just career. starting to be yeah. in demand for everything, which I'm not totally. sure if that's even how it is for him now. I don't, I, I don't mm -hmm. get the sense. I don't know a ton about what he's doing. Last time I saw him was at Rob's in LA, but um, no, it was good. He had a very dark sense of humor, which we had in common. So there was a lot of joking. He was a sober guy. And like most yeah. sober people, he compensated with something else, which for him, it was like 50 gallons of Dr. Pepper a day. I remember that. <laughs> um, Respect. Yeah. Um, it was breezy. The thing I remember most about that with him is, he was just a good, we'd, we'd spent so many years making records that took forever to make, which yeah. I, I still like making. And he was the first one that was kind of like, Hey, you can do it in seven days. Why not? Everyone. And, um, that record, I went into the studio with a lot of unfinished songs and on purpose kind of to test myself about like, can I finish songs during smoke breaks? So people would yeah. go have a cigarette. I know this song doesn't go anywhere in 10 minutes. Can I get it to go somewhere? So that's what I remember uh, from that was it went really fast. I wanted to ask about a song in particular. My favorite, maybe my favorite song off that record is the, uh, the journalist falls in love with death row and mate number 16. Mm. Was that influenced by a certain story you had heard? Or is that just like a story yeah. you made up yourself? So I used to go to, when I lived in Chicago, I went to this video store called odd obsession constantly every day and, and made great friends with the staff. And, and um, so it was a, a great year, two years of just, watching everything just crazy stuff because those guys knew everything um i i think i know a lot about that stuff those guys knew everything um and that song there was an errol morris tv show called first person i don't know if you can remember that it was very I don't very know if I know it. it was kind of the same thing like errol morris had a moment and someone decided it was a good idea to give him a tv show and it was a great idea sure. but it wasn't a good idea for money um, and so what he said he did was he'd have interns send him newspapers from every small town in America every day. He'd try to find a story. He'd do a 30-minute version of one of his docs, 15 of those, and he has a season of TV. Amazing series. Incredible. It would, um, And he had one, yeah, about this lady who fancied herself an impartial journalist and went to interview a killer and got swept up by his charm and and not only married him, but started recording 
concept records about forgiveness for all, including killers, painted her face, and she became a big advocate for um, for leniency for death row inmates, and, and not just death row inmates who should get leniency, but like people who straight up killed kids and stuff. Like, right? Um, wow. She really got taken up by him, and so I thought, of course, that's pretty amazing. And so yeah, it was about feels that. like a song. Yeah. yeah right. Damn. Um. And yeah, I wanted to ask about, uh, I, you did a couple records with Rob Schnaff. I'm assuming that was yeah. here in LA. That was in LA at his place. Um, you yeah. know Rob? I do. I'm, well, I, I'm not going to pretend to say we're, we're pals, but I've, uh, I, I hung with him one day. Uh, some friends were recording with him and now a bunch of friends have recorded records with him. Um, but I got to talk with him for a while about this, you know, a few records he had done. And I, you know, he allowed me to punish him about some stuff for, for a while. Well, Brian Deck, because he was like almost like a, it sounds weird, but it was almost like this dad figure. I, I have to separate Brian from everybody else because Brian and his family became like my family. But but Rob, um, Rob's easily the best producer I've ever worked with. And, 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 and also someone that I love so much personally. And I think he likes me. I mean, it seems like we get along really well, but we also get along in a way where we can like butt heads in a nice way. Um, that, from what I understand, that seems to be most people's takeaway. Where they're yeah, like, he's like the best kind of cranky person. He's not really cranky. Totally, he's very funny. Yeah. He's like the funniest. That's the, the 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 only people that really work with me or work well with us are people that are funny because that's it's the that's foundation of everything. And, yeah, just being goofballs and like we all like the same kind of comedy and. Um, now Rob to this day and Rob, I, I got really sick during that record. I got divorced during that record and Rob just went so out of his way to like, not just finish that record, but help me record other songs. I didn't really have the money for it was always on the phone with me when I had, to, I had to come back for surgery and we had to pause that record because I was just too sick to sing and just was always on the phone with me and, and that kind of person just like, a, he's the best producer I've worked with and my favorite, but he's an even better person, which is like, I don't have any appetite for working with shitty fuckers. Like, life's too short. Um, well, after what you just described, something tells me he likes you. Oh, God, I hope so. Yeah, I I, I don't think I've given him too many reasons. Maybe I've given him a couple reasons not to, but not that many. But <laughs> no, I love Rob and I love... Um, Rob's my thing with producers is the best ones are really great problem solvers. Like Congleton's way of solving problems is really valid, which is mostly like, let's just step away for a while from this with Rob. Um, he's someone who pick up a guitar and in five minutes he can solve any, and you hope you don't give him too many problems. And I don't think I do. Cause I, I, I do know what I'm doing, but right. Um, he's just so technically skilled which is the best kind of producer. not some hippie that's like, let's all start feeling it. Like, you know, he's like solving musical problems, you know? Um, that's always the best case when like someone is very focused and very dedicated and can just answer the questions or not even maybe answer the questions, but present you with options on how to get past something or move a song in a certain direction. That's like, it's truly, truly the best thing. Something that because I think he's is a craftsman, cool. you know? Yeah. Yeah, so the thing is cool is about Brian Deck. So Brian Deck played in Red Red Meat, right? My favorite fucking man who I love so goddamn much. Oh, fuck. oh that's Red awesome. Red Red Meat's the greatest fucking man in the world. 
so uh the band i play in we did two records uh with brad wood who's like one of my of favorite course, people in the entire brad. world yeah and, and brad wood did those red red meat of records course. which is just Funny so gets cool paid. do you know tim yeah. tim who Rutili from red red meat caliphone singer oh no 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 like i've never met oh, oh yeah i love tim tim's wonderful tim's a great guy and tim um tim lives out there in the hills because he came by a couple times when we did that thing with rob tim was another one one of the first people who was so sweet to me when I was little and, and came in and played he, Tim's on buzzard. And, um, I still talk to Tim a bit and, um, fuck, I love that band. I, and I love, Brad, I don't know Brad super well, but I like Brad a lot. Yeah. I was going to ask if you had ever met him. So you, have you yeah, met, I've had, met? Yeah. I met Brad a few times and he's friends with a good friend of mine named Tom DeSavia. And a couple of times Brad loves craft beer, right? Yes, he does. Yeah, we went out a couple times to a, a couple places in um, Sherman Oaks with Brad, and um, yeah, he's within that area for sure. And he'll he'll yeah, also yeah. tell a story. He's a he's a storyteller. He'll he's he'll get going. A which is my favorite because in those such it might this might be deceptive that I know how to articulate a sentence, but I, I prefer to just have a beer and sit there while Brad talks about whatever you want, or whoever, not just Brad, but yeah, um, <laughs> I can I can blend into the scenery. We had made a joke that because of the first record we did with Brad, uh, we were nervous because it was this guy who did all these records that we loved. So he just would, you know, he would tell really long stories and we would be looking at the clock like, man, we still have a lot of work to do today. And he would I just was, be going. Whereas like yeah, the second record, like we were that. like, we're like, you know, pals of them now. We're like, we got to get an air horn to just like go yeah. off. <laughs> like, I could tell that just in the clouds brewery that he had the potential to be a great storyteller and a yarn puller. Well, damn, dude, let me hit you with the the last question, which is when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? It's probably just that little short story I told. I think I told it longer on another podcast and I told it shortly here, but I I, I used to get the um, Billboard Guide to Touring. I feel like we're similar age or close, but um, yeah, Billboard Guide to Touring magazine and, and I would spam every venue and every label in the country with my demos and of course, 99. I did the same thing when I was little. I, when I was t- 10 or 12, I wrote to all the film directors I could find addresses for. Do you have any advice? I want to be a director. And I said it before too, but like Spielberg's office got back to me. The only one. I sent 30 of these and how much that meant to me. But when I, I did the same thing with my demos, sent them all over, sent them to labels, sent them to venues, sent them to whatever. And the guy, Rob, who, who ran Luna Lounge called, I was eating dinner with my parents when I was 15 or 16. And my, my mom said, you have a call from New York. This guy, Rob, wants to talk to you. And he was just amazing. He got on the phone and was like, I love, I love this demo. I, I can't, how old are you? You know, like, um, I'd love you to come out to Greenwich Village and play the club. Here's some dates that we have. And I was like, what the fuck? All right. Yeah. My friends and I went out there in the back of an actual pickup truck to New York. And, and, and again, I've said it before. I'll keep it short, but I, I we booked couple little pay to play things, just trying to pretend we were on tour at that age. And, um, and we, and we played Luna lounge. And of course it was two people there, three people there, but, um, but he sat with me for hours after our set and, and, and was, um, and was really honest about it. It was like, I think it's great. He's like, here's some stuff you should work on. It's not perfect. You're fucking 12 or whatever. Like (laughs) you need to work at this, you know? Um, but I, but I get a lot of demos and I'm in the middle of New York and this was the first place the Strokes played and I don't get many demos from kids your age that make me want to call their parents' house. 
and it just meant so much to me. I don't, you know, I don't know. I was little and, 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 um, that's huge. It was huge. It was hours that he sat there and talked to me. He didn't have any, there was nobody in his fucking club for our show. Of course. Why would there be? Right. Um, he took me around New York. He, he, he opened New York for years. New York was my city and it, I was there all the time. And it, part of it was because it's a city that everyone acts like is so mean. New York opened up to me like a fucking flower when I was little. Everyone there was so kind to me. Every, it was just something about my vibration in that city worked together well. And it all started with him. And so that was probably the first moment where it wasn't like I felt like I'd made it or anything, but it just felt like pretty amazing That's that we you. live in a world where someone like that would want to sit with me and, and talk to me for that long about it, you know? 1,000%. That makes that makes all the sense in the world. Um, dude, this has been great. Thank you so much, Richard, for for hanging out with me and, uh, and coming on and doing this. Thank this, you. Has been a, yeah. this has been a lot. It's been a blast for me. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Richard for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder, there's a bonus episode. If you head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where Richard answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. And hey, if you enjoyed this one more time, please subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this. And if you have a second to leave a positive rating and review, I would appreciate it oh so much because these things help. All right. Take care of yourself and I will see you next week. Be good. Bye bye.